The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. There is victory that was won by Christ on the cross and which is to be exercised by us in our daily living. There is no allowance made for the nature of our old Adam. It is totally condemned and delivered to be crucified. But when we have come out into the life of triumph and know the joy and power of victory over the outward acts of our Adamic nature, we still are aware of the seepage of evil that taints all our life. Yet in spite of that seepage, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Now No Condemnation. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one chapter of the Bible, which one would you want? When Dr. Barnhouse posed this question to 20 prominent Bible teachers of his day, several of them chose Romans 8. It begins with a declaration of no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and ends with a promise of no separation from the love of God. Join us today as we begin to explore the riches of this magnificent chapter of Scripture. Today, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Now No Condemnation. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. It is with great gratitude that we acknowledge thy goodness as we have reached this plane in life. We have come now to this great eighth of Romans, and we ask thee that the Holy Spirit shall make it glorious to thy people. And all that we ask is in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The first line in this great eighth of Romans is, There is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. It is not without some emotion that I begin this study, for it brings us to the chapter which many think to be the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. I did not realize when I began these studies that there would be so much to say on the earlier chapters. But those who have followed them closely will realize that I have tried to plow the ground well and harrow the soil to a smoothness that would enable the truth to grow in hearts from the seed that has been sown. I know now what I did not know at the beginning, that these studies differ from those of all other commentators. I believe that I have incorporated almost everything of value that has been written by those who have gone before me. 
but there is also a great deal that is new and that frequently goes counter to the ideas of many of those who have preceded me. But I wish that students would realize that where other commentators have frequently covered ten verses with two or three pages, I have given chapters to lines and words which have been practically passed over by others, and I truly believe I have brought forth meanings which are the true ones and which have not been brought to the surface before. It's necessary, therefore, that my readers be like the Berean Christians who heard the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In my earlier editorial days, I wrote letters to some of the outstanding preachers and teachers of the world and asked them to write, in a word, what chapter was their favorite. I knew, of course, that needs differ at different phases of life and that the choice was something like asking a father to choose his favorite child. But nevertheless, I suggested that if they were to be wrecked on a desert island, and if there was to be but a single page of the Bible washed up in the wreckage, what chapter would they like to have on that single page? Five out of twenty chose the eighth chapter of Romans. Dr. William Pettengill wrote, There was an old German commentator named Spiner who said that if the Holy Scripture were a ring and the epistle to the Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Quite obviously, Spiner had a favorite chapter. I'm not sure that I have, but if I could have only one chapter, I think I should also select the 8th of Romans. Why? Because beginning with no condemnation for those who are under the blood, it ends with no separation from the love of God and also because that between these two glorious terminals there are the two majestic truths of present victory through the indwelling Spirit of God and the blessed hope of the Lord's return. Dr. Charles Trumbull, the editor of the Sunday School Times, wrote, The eighth of Romans has become peculiarly precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and between no defeat. This wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again, the indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the believer, God's fatherhood, the intercession of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and blessed hope of Christ's return, the working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future, and the glorious climactic song of triumph, no separation in time or eternity from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Before I had written the letters to the men of God who sent me their choices, I had written down my own choice, which was as follows. I would choose the eighth of Romans. It tells me my judgment is past. It shows me the risen Christ as my victory. It reveals the lost estate of the world. It promises me bodily resurrection. It points the way to fellowship with God. It gives me assurance. It teaches me that circumstances are unimportant and all are meant for my good. It promises redemption for the earth. It speaks of the indwelling spirit and the life of prayer. It shows me that I was loved by God from eternity to eternity. It chains me to God forever. First link for knowledge, then predestination, then calling, justification, and glorification. It gives me an inexhaustible supply in Christ. It tells me that there's no prosecutor to accuse me or any court that will judge me since Christ has wrought for me. It hides me in Christ who is God so that I am his forever. Now that was written 20 years ago. 
and I have matured greatly since then. At the present moment, I would say that I have so revised my opinions of the seventh chapter of Romans that at the present moment, it is filling all of my mind and heart. The deliverance set forth in its conclusion is so great and mighty that it pervades every thought and desire. If the eighth chapter of Romans is a honeymoon, the seventh chapter of Romans is the wedding. I believe that there are too many Christians who are wanting the experiences of the eighth chapter of Romans without understanding at all what is really set forth in the seventh chapter as the basis of the truths that we are now going to see. I'm going to enter our study of the eighth chapter of Romans in the order of the English translation, though I know the Greek begins with the negative, which would almost force us to translate the opening verse, no possible condemnation is there therefore for those who are in Christ Jesus. I shall begin with the thought involved in the word therefore. Some time ago, I saw a beautiful pair of hinges which had been made in colonial times. The door was a large one, and the ironmonger who had wrought out the hinges had had scope for an artistic design. There were three curling flanges which were fastened to the framework of the house and which held the weight of the door. The top flange was about 15 inches long, the middle one about 8 inches, and the lower one about 3 inches. Their slender, graceful curves arched one above the other, and time had melted their grace and their solidity into real charm. If I may use this set of hinges as a figure of speech, I will say that the word therefore is a threefold hinge which fastens all that follows in this epistle to the framework which has gone before. There are three flanges which jut back into the earlier chapters of the epistle. There is therefore, because of chapter 3, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, because of chapter 6, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And there is therefore now, because of chapter 7, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. To set this forth theologically, we must put it otherwise. There is therefore, because of the truth of justification, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, because of our union with Christ, being joined to him in every phase of his eternal being and work, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And there is therefore now, because of our marriage to Christ, as God puts it, complete identification with him, no more twain but one, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. How could there be condemnation for them who have been justified? I repeat it again, because it is so perennially important. Justification is that act of God whereby he declares an ungodly man to be perfect while he is still ungodly. Oh, if only that truth could be burned upon the minds and hearts of all believers. It is the basis of all true growth in the knowledge of God, and it is the foundation of all true holiness. It is my measured opinion that the mixture of sanctification with justification is the cause of more false doctrine than any other error that has ever been committed by religious thinkers. Even to think of sanctification as an integral part of justification is to give some credit to the Adamic heart. Oh, that we might understand the nature of true salvation. God declares a man to be wicked, helpless, undone, ungodly in every part of his being. God announces that he proposes to save some men 
and to join them to the Lord Jesus Christ forever, practically enlarging the Trinity to include the great numbers which will compose the body of those he calls the saints, and of which every believer is a member. He reaches down and touches them when they are dead in trespasses and sins, at a moment when they have no thought of him, no concern for him, no thought of their need, no thought of salvation. He plants within them saving faith, and by the Holy Spirit gives them the spirit of conviction that makes them feel their need. It appears to them as though they were seeking God, when in reality that very seeking is the first mark that true and eternal life has already been planted within them by God, and they have already been marked by him as his own forever. Some human agent, already one of his own, brings to them the knowledge and terms of the gospel, often in a distorted fashion, sometimes in a way that is even contrary to the simplicity of the gospel as it is in reality. The individual thinks that he's doing something about it, exercising a choice, displaying his will, while in reality, the first faint stirrings of the new life that has been given in an irresistible grace has made itself known in the horrible nest of the Adamic nature. God all the time has been doing the work in the heart by the Holy Spirit, and on the books of heaven he has already written all of the sins of that individual to the account of Christ, and has written the perfect divine righteousness to the account of the sinner. Some of these sinners become saints, think that they have done it themselves, think that they have given their heart to God, as some evangelists put it, or that they have accepted Christ of their own wills. Now all this is as foolish as the thoughts of children who think that they have come into this world through a cabbage patch or in a rosebud or by the stork. The new birth is entirely the work of God and a man has been saved generally for a long time before he has the remotest idea of the nature of what has happened to him by the sole grace of God. In the light of this great truth which forms the heart of the first chapters of the epistle, especially the last part of chapter 3 and the whole of chapters 4 and 5, we can see the force and power of the hinge that connects the present high glories of the child of God with the foundation of all these glories in the justifying act of God based on the redemption that was provided by Christ when he hung on the cross, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, when he bore the chastisement of our peace, and healed us from the defeats of sin by his stripes. Many men have seen that the therefore of our text must go back to the justification set forth in chapter 3. Few could have expressed it better than the saintly Marcus Rainsford, who almost a century ago wrote the following. The apostle's argument looks backward and forward. Therefore is a connecting link from the third chapter where he abundantly proves that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This third chapter settles the question that all men, whether Jew or Gentile, and they include the whole world, have sinned. They never have had one single righteous person among them. And when all the world is thus brought in guilty before God, then it is that his splendid salvation by grace alone is revealed. But now the righteousness without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference, for all 
have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, because the propitiation for our sins has already been provided, offered, and accepted in heaven. Now there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, not only because of the justifying work of God on our behalf in Christ, but there is also now no condemnation for us because of the way God counted all of those whom he thus justified as being joined to the risen Lord Jesus Christ forever in the totality of his being. There is, because of our identification with Christ, set forth in the last verses of chapter 5 and the first verses of chapter 6, no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. It would be as impossible for God to strike Christ as it would be for him to strike us who are in Christ. You and I who are in Christ were in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, chosen in him. We were in Christ when he came into this world. We were in Christ when he was circumcised. We were in Christ when he grew, increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We were in Christ when he was publicly manifested in his baptism as the Messiah, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We were in Christ when he went about doing good. We were in Christ when he was nailed to the cross and during the hours that he hung there, abandoned of God. We were in Christ when he dismissed his spirit and went to paradise for three days and nights. We were in Christ when he arose from the dead and gave his triumphant greetings and his departing counsels to us. We were in Christ when he ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God in heaven. We are in Christ now that he is seated there, making intercession for us. We will be in Christ when he arises from the throne and comes back to remove us from the earth. We shall be in Christ forever in all the glories of his eternal reign. Now, because of these truths, there is no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. But there is no condemnation to us who are in Christ Jesus because of the immediate truths which we have been studying in our last few lessons. We are dead to the law and married to Christ, even though our present condition is one that continues to have in it that which discharges thoughts and desires of evil, even as a boil discharges pus. There is absolute triumph prepared for us and expected of us. There is victory that was won by Christ on the cross and which is to be exercised by us in our daily living. There is no allowance made for the nature of our old Adam. It is totally condemned and delivered to be crucified. But when we have come out into the life of triumph and know the joy and power of victory over the outward acts of our Adamic nature, we still are aware of the seepage of evil that taints all our life. Yet in spite of that seepage, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Now having seen the gripping reach of this therefore that lays hold of all the foundation truth that has been set forth in this epistle, we turn to the glorious meaning of the time word in our text and look upon the fact that there is therefore now, now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. 
that there should be no condemnation for us in the future when we are practically with him, we can understand easily. But we must lay hold by faith on this great fact that God himself at this very moment has no judgment against us whatsoever. There is a great and wonderful truth set down in one of our great hymns, translated from the German of Count Zinzendorf by Wesley himself. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Mid flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand at that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and death and every stain. Now without detracting in the slightest from the great truths that are implied in the application which Zinzendorf has made of this certainty that shall be ours when we stand in the actual presence of the one who is altogether holy. Let me point out that there is a very present application of these truths to our hearts. There is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty, are my glorious dress. In present earth in these arrayed, with joy do I lift up my head. Bold do I stand in present day, for who ought to my charge can lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and death and every stain. It is impossible for God himself to find a flaw in the righteous position of any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, if a stumbling drunkard went into a rescue mission an hour ago and was made alive in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for him in this moment, even though his headache may be severe for some hours yet. There was no condemnation for the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, the instant that he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he had had a suicide sword at his belly a few instants before. Now, in this very moment, there is no condemnation for me. There is no condemnation for you if you have trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The awareness of this present glorious liberty and freedom is one of the greatest spiritual forces that can ever be unloosed in the life of a believer. I can understand that some Christians have had their emotions strained to the utmost upon the realization of this force of the love of God, placing the believer in a position of no condemnation at this very present instant. There are those who sometimes criticize the emotional outbreaks of some people at the knowledge of their position in Christ. I recognize clearly that there is a religious ecstasy which is counterfeit and which arises from the flesh apart from the truths of the word of God. But the existence of the counterfeit is one more proof of the reality of the original. I can remember a hymn which I heard years ago. Its music may be criticized as lacking in form. Its words may be criticized as lacking in poetical beauty. The cynic may call it doggerel, but the fact is that great truth caught hold of a heart that was not endowed by nature with great musical talent or poetical gift, and in a way that some might call uncouth or uncultured, they sang, like a mighty sea, like a mighty sea, comes the love of Jesus sweeping over me. The waves of glory roll, my joy I can't control, as the love of Jesus comes sweeping o'er my soul. Let's face it, a soul that comes to the full realization that he ought to be in hell, 
but that in reality the Lord Jesus took his hell, and that there is therefore now, now, now no condemnation for him, because he is in Christ Jesus, is likely to become quite moved by the truth. If members of the human race are permitted to yell because their team won a football game, because their candidate was elected, because they have won $50 on a horse race, because their oil drilling has produced a gusher, then please, please let us cry aloud and shout for joy that because we are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation for us now. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bring this truth to every heart. If there are some that have never known this joy, bring them to the place where they trust the Lord Jesus as Savior in this hour. And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace, yea, and the assurance and certainty of our present wonderful position in Christ be upon us and abide with us. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. There is no condemnation for us because of the certainty of our justification, our eternal identification with Christ, and our union with Him in every phase of His eternal being and work. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Now No Condemnation. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Now No Condemnation, or simply request message number R8-1. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Temptation and How to Meet It. Temptation comes to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil and pulls us away from God towards sin and disobedience. How can we effectively fight against its powerful influence? This free booklet traces the history of temptation, identifies its various sources and manifestations, and outlines the biblical strategies for effectively dealing with temptation in whatever form it takes. Ask for your free copy of Temptation and How to Meet It when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse 
and the Bible.